okay. Welcome to the Cavish Ships Podcast, where we try and cut through the fog and the murk, shine a bit of light on naval and maritime issues of the day. I'm Chris Cavus. And I'm Chris Cervello. Coming up, a group of 30 Marine Corps generals, including every living former commandant, is openly challenging the plan of the current commandant to transform the Corps into a lighter, faster, and more responsive combat force. One prominent former Marine who served the Corps as an art- artillery commander has risen to defend General David Berger. In a few minutes, we'll hear from former Deputy Secretary of Defense Robert Work, some of his thoughts not only on the plan, but also on the propriety of such an open debate. But first, a quick roundup of naval news around the world. The U.S. has quietly amassed a significant amount of naval power in the Far East in conjunction with President Biden's visit to South Korea and Japan. The Japan-based carrier USS Ronald Reagan, having completed its winter overhaul, left its base at Yokosuka May 20th to begin a regional deployment. The carrier Abraham Lincoln also is reportedly in the area and about to put into Yokosuka. Additionally, the new assault ship USS Tripoli reportedly was operating near Japan's inland sea by May 20th. The Tripoli left San Diego May 2nd for her first deployment in independent cruise of the Western Pacific. The deployment seemed to be in response to increasingly aggressive Chinese behavior at sea and concerns that North Korea could be preparing a ballistic missile demonstration. In war news, there isn't a whole lot new to report. Pentagon spokesman John Kirby said May 20th there was, quote, no changes in the maritime posture in the Black Sea and added the Russian naval blockade of Ukraine's ports is continuing. A major NATO exercise dubbed Vigilance Activity Neptune Shield 2022 is taking place in the European waters of the Baltic, Adriatic, and Mediterranean seas. Among the U.S. forces taking part are the carrier Harry S. Truman Strike Group in the Mediterranean and the Kearsarge Amphibious Ready Group with the 22nd Marine Expeditionary Unit in the Baltic Sea. The exercises are running from May 17th through the 31st. The U.S. Navy's top two leaders visited the aircraft carrier George Washington May 17th to show their concern after a number of recent suicides among the ship's crew. There are also issues with housing and morale and the overall welfare of the GW sailors. The carrier has has been undergoing a major midlife overhaul at Newport News Shipbuilding since 2017. The overhaul, first scheduled to have been completed in August 2021, now is forecast to continue well into 2023. Navy Secretary Carlos del Toro and Chief of Naval Operations Admiral Mike Gilday promised a number of measures to try and improve conditions for the crew. We want to ensure no one else feels as if their only option is to take their own life, del Toro told the sailors. A revised inactivation list for fiscal 2022 was released by the U.S. Navy on May May 17, updating the list issued last summer. The new list incorporates changes made by Congress restricting the number of cruisers and littoral combat ships the Navy can decommission this current year, which runs through the end of September. Two cruisers, San Jacinto and Lake Champlain, are originally scheduled to decommission this year, are off the list, but five others remain. Congress also forbade the inactivation this year of the littoral combat ships Fort Worth, Detroit, and Little Rock. And while they won't officially leave service now, the Navy's fiscal 2023 request asked to decommission all five of those ships, plus many more. Congress has yet to act on the current fiscal defense budget request. 
In new ship news, Navy Secretary Del Toro announced May 19 that a new Arleigh Burke class destroyer will be named for Telesforo Trinidad, the only Filipino awarded the Medal of Honor for heroism while serving in the United States Navy. Trinidad saved several sailors during a boiler accident aboard the armored cruiser San Diego in 1915. And on May 21st, the new littoral combat ship Minneapolis-St. Paul is to be commissioned in ceremonies in Duluth, Minnesota, the first ever Navy commissioning held in Duluth, and a very rare visit by a Navy ship to the westernmost of the Great Lakes. And that's a look at some of this week's naval news. So as we said, one of the great uh, debates at the moment is uh, not just about the U.S. Marine Corps, but within the U.S. Marine Corps. Commandant David Berger and his Force Design 2030 plan to revamp the Marine Corps into a lighter, faster, more lethal, and more modern force has been underway for uh, for several years now. But the uh, controversy has broken out in the open within the within the ranks of how to carry this out. So with us today is somebody who has been right in the middle of this for all along. Uh, former um, Deputy Defense Secretary Robert Work, himself a, a, a former Marine uh, Colonel. Um, so welcome to the show today, Bob. Thank you, Chris. Great to be here. All right. So you have you have appeared um, you have you, on uh, in forums. You have written articles. What's going on right now is uh, about a group of about 30 Marine Corps generals, including every single living former commandant, uh, has come out in some form of opposition to force design 2030 and not just the elements of it, but the way it's being carried out and the way it's been, it, it's being rolled around. Where do you stand on this today? Why, why is this broken out into the open? Well, as you said, um, before we started recording, you know, open debate is very, very important when you're trying to do something of this magnitude and scale. And what General Berger is trying to do is, you know, ground shaking. Um, it's very unusual for a service chief to announce that I believe that the structure and posture and organization of the of the organization I lead is not the organization we need in the future. And we need to change it as a matter of some urgency so that we will be ready in the future. And as you said, there are a number of retired general officers who believe that the changes that Berger is making uh, threatens the very existence of the Marine Corps. They refer to it as an existential threat. So normally this type of a debate would be kept inside the Marine Corps. Uh, but the two sides are so dug in uh, that the retired generals believe that they had to go public. And that's exactly what's happening right now. You know, they're trying to convince Congress to intervene and stop General Berger from pursuing his plans until a different independent assessment could be made on whether the plans make sense. Of course, this Congress has already approved this plan. It's uh, we just had the uh, this is the third update, second update. There was a plan, and then there's then there's annual. Oh, excuse me. Then there's annual updates. Congress has approved this. Congress is on board with it. It actually began in the last administration. I believe you are right. The original genesis of Force Design 2030, which is the title of General Berger's plan, was part of what is called the Fiscal Year 2021 Program Objective Memorandum. 
That's the thing that a commandant or any service chief puts together and briefs to the senior leadership in the Pentagon and says, this is what I want to do. This is how I want to expend the resources that have been allocated to me as the Title X organized, train, and equip uh, responsible officer. This is what I want to do. And that came out in 2019. Um, it went through all the approvals inside the Department of Defense, got to Congress, and they approved it in the fiscal year 2021 National Defense Authorization Act. Now, I don't know, I haven't read the exact language, Chris. I don't know if they said, we approve FD 2030 and all of its, all of its thing. Essentially, what they did is they approved all of the decisions that General Berger recommended in FY 2021. Then they approved it again in fiscal year 2022. And just last week, the fiscal 2023 uh, Marine Corps plan was briefed to both the House and Senate Armed Services Committee and received a very, very um, good reception. Uh, so I think you're right. I believe Congress is on board with what the Commandant is trying to do. So why now? I mean, the, the, this obviously the controversy behind the scenes within the core has been going on for quite some time. But in terms of the current Sturm und Drang, the, 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 the public discussion, this seems to have begun with a piece in the Wall Street Journal from, from one time Navy Secretary Jim Webb um, on March 26th. And now it, it, and it sort of gained speed after that. There were articles in Politico and then kind of like a you know, rolling stone here. But why now? What's why is this happening now? I believe, and I don't know for certain, Chris, but what I believe is that because Congress had approved Berger's plans twice, and because OSD was actually diverting money to the Marine Corps to help pay for aspects of the plan, the uh, retired general said, if we don't intervene now, we're going to be out of the game. So if we want to stop this from happening, we better do it now. Uh, but as you said, in the article written by Webb, they essentially accused the Congress of being asleep at the switch. They said, look, when this came up to the Hill in 21 and 22, we had COVID. So there, were, um, there weren't live hearings. There were Zoom meetings. And because of the chaos surrounding the 2020 election, Congress was kind of asleep at the switch. And I have to tell you, I talk with members on the Hill and they're offended by that. <laughs> we weren't asleep at the switch. We knew exactly what the commandant was telling us and we agreed with him. So I, I don't know why they decided to go public at this time, but they have. <laughs> Mr. Secretary, I, I wanna talk about the significance culturally of um, this debate. Um, as a retired naval officer, somebody that spent a lot of time in the Pentagon, I'm kind of shocked by this. I mean, th this is, as you alluded at the beginning of your comments, this is not typically what the Marines do. I mean, the Marines um, are known to have spirited, thoughtful debates behind closed doors and then kind of lock arms, both the active component and, and the retired component. Can you speak to the cultural significance and how out of the ordinary th this is for maybe those in the audience that don't follow the Marines as close as they follow the, the Navy uh, cultural components? Chris, it's a great question. 
There is nothing remotely, remotely like this in Marine Corps history. And I'll be darned if I can think of anything remotely like this in any of the other service histories where a group of retired officers are publicly undercutting the office of the service chief and are actively working against the good order and discipline of the service they profess to love to stop what a commandant is doing. It is astonishing to me. As a Marine myself, I'm saddened, I'm angered, I'm embarrassed that it's happening. Um, I can't find any justification even if they believe that what General Berger do, is doing is wrong, the way they are going about it is just beyond the pale. So I agree with you for, uh, you know, for people outside the Marine Corps, they're going, oh, there's, you know, two sides who are arguing against each other. But, you know, this is, this is really quite extraordinary. The politeness of the CSIS discussion that occurred, you know, earlier this month, almost hides, I think, the significance of uh, this um, schism, if you will, right? I mean, you, you know, very well respected folks up on the CSIS dais. You guys had a great back and forth. It was a very sort of think tank, polite event, but. I worry about my classmates from the academy or, or mentors that are Marines that now are kind of caught in the middle, right? I mean, I think you get paid the big bucks to be the commandant and deal with this type of stuff. But if you're a one-star or two-star or a colonel, um, th this has got to be pretty tough for you. Can you talk again to that cultural element? Yes. In essence, what the retired general officers are doing is they are asking Marines to take sides in this argument against their commandant. That's what they're asking Marines to do. And so you're right, Chris, it puts young Marines in a, a heck of a position. You know, when they read a letter that says, look, um, 40 retired general officers think what the commandant is doing is stupid. Um, what are they supposed to think? Um, now, that said, Chris, as Chris uh, Cabas said, this kind of started on March 25th or 26th when uh, former Senator Jim Webb writes the article. And he says, the gloves are off. We're going to go after the commandant. And uh, it was kind of like shock and awe. Within about a two or three week period, there were all sorts of articles all over the place. And you didn't see any articles on the Marine Corps side, the act, I mean, the General Berger side, because I think they were just kind of, they were caught by surprise. They were saying, what the heck is going on? But you're starting to see uh, the young Marines uh, starting to push back. You know, I think what has happened, and I think, this is my opinion. I mean, I have no scientific evidence to prove this, but I believe that more and more Marines are mad that the retired officers are doing this and they're starting to rally around the Commandant. For the readers, uh, if they want to read a really, really good uh, article, there was an article in War on the Rocks called A View from the Trenches on the Debate Racking the Marine Corps. It was written by a Marine who has been an infantryman for 30 years. 
And he goes, as a Marine gunner, I have some candid advice to senior retired leaders lambasting the Marine Corps reforms. Look in the trenches. The character of war has changed. We will either adapt or perish. So you're starting to see more and more Marines come back out and say, hey, <laughs> what the retired general officers, they are respected. You know, they had wonderful careers in the Marine Corps. Most of them are extremely highly decorated combat veterans. But we're talking about war in the future. Their experience in Vietnam doesn't necessarily go to a war in 2030 where both sides have guided munitions and loitering drones like we see in uh, Ukraine and long range precision strike. No serving Marine Corps officer has experience in that type of warfare. So really it comes down to, here are my opinions of what this is going to be about. Here are my opinions of the capabilities we're gonna to need to win in that war. And so it comes down to an argument between, uh, you know, really smart, dedicated, competent Marines. Uh, but generally we're talking about opinions because you can't be certain about the future. So to change, say change is hard is uh, kind of uh, an understatement. Anybody who's trying to change anything is going up against entrenched attitudes. And it always brings controversy. It doesn't really matter what you're trying to do or whatever venue. It's always difficult. I'm thinking back um, quite some time to the mid-1990s and Admiral Borda, Admiral Mike Borda, the Chief of Naval Operations, who um, was someone who was trying to change some of the cultural attitudes within the Navy and ran into the same sort of institutional roadblocks. I had to, uh, I have to admit when uh, on Mar in, in a couple of few weeks ago, well, late March, when um, these comments came out in the Wall Street Journal, I had to go, well, there he goes again. It's Jim Webb. Jim Webb, who was Secretary of the Navy for like six months or something before he quit in a peak and has spent many, many decades since then talking about how he was once Secretary of the Navy. Um, sorry, that was just a dig. Um, made a speech at the uh, at the U.S. Naval Academy um, in 1996, 1990, late late 95, yeah, 95. Um, pretty much personally attacking the chief of naval operations. I remember reading about it and thinking and being frank, really shocked. It, I was it was mean. It was like whatever you think of the issues involved here, he went after Borda personally. I thought it was uh, it was it was a pretty low blow, um, and uh, actually my uh, partner was uh, we, you were you were a plebe at the time you were present for that at the academy, Chris. Yeah, I was I was a plebe at, at that event and was as a nineteen year old kid was kind of shocked that the former secretary of the navy would go after our CNO. I, I've I've since learned a, a little bit, but yeah, it was crazy. I mean, do you see echoes of that? And obviously, we're not. I'm not for a, an atomic second trying to equate uh, General Berger's state of mind with uh, Mike Borda's state of mind. Not at all. Quite the contrary. But you do see echoes of this, you know, palace revolt, as, as, as it were, uh, of that coming here again. Do you do you do you feel that way, Mr. Work? Well, thankfully, I have not seen any personal attacks against the commandant uh other than implicit attacks like this guy must be stupid or you know those are the type of how could he possibly think this 
Um, but there hasn't, in my view, I haven't read any personal attacks, but I am struck by the condescension <laughs> that is being used by the retired officers uh, when they talk about what is happening. Um, you know, they say things like, we do not question the sincerity of the commandant as he makes his changes. <laughs> what the hell? You know, it's like, look, pat the little kid on the head and say, you're trying very hard. And, uh, but we don't doubt your sincerity. We just don't think that, you know, you know what the hell you're talking about. So it's not a direct attack like the attacks that uh, Secretary Webb made on Borda, but the condescension and arrogance of them essentially saying, our thinking is the right way. You need to change your thinking to bend to our thinking. In fact, in one of the first original letters published by the retired general officers, it ended in the sentence, no bended knee. Now this refers to a time in the early 50s when the Marine Corps was under attack as an independent service. And there were some people that said we wanted to get rid of the Marine Corps. We want them to just become part of the Navy. Don't want to be in a separate, a separate service. And General Vandergriff, General Vandergriff made an impassioned plea to Congress on saying, look, we only listen to what Congress wants about, thinks about the Marine Corps. We don't listen to these other people. And he ended his talk by saying no bended knee. Well, the retired officers want the commandant to bend his knee to them. That's essentially what they're saying. You know, we think we know what's right for the Marine Corps. This is wrong. We want you to stop. And they say the secretary, I mean, uh, General Berger won't listen to them. Believe me, Chris and Chris, the commandant has listened to them a lot. Um, he sat with several uh, former commandants for seven hours uh, to hear them out. He just doesn't agree with them. You know, not agreeing with them doesn't mean uh, that he's not listening. He's listening. He doesn't agree with their arguments. So one of the challenge, one of the main aspects of force design 2030, as I've looked at it and heard people talk about it for several years now, is of all, and, and this is a very common, I'm going to talk about this. It's, it's hard to talk about it in detail because it's, it's so broad. It's so all encompassing. It's really changing in many ways, some of the fundamental nature of the Corps' missions and how they go about it. And obviously he's, he's, he's coming up against opposition. Anybody who tries these changes though, you throw a lot of stuff on the wall, you see what sticks. General Berger will not be there forever. His term will come to an end. He will move on. Somebody else who's in the Corps right now will become the new commandant. They're not going to reverse course 180 and go back to where they were four or five years ago. Of the aspects that are in play right now and what's, what's, what's ahead, what do you think institutionally and culturally, where has, where is, has Force Design 2030 succeeded so far? And on the other hand, what are the what are the primary one or two challenges ahead that are going to be there for the next commandant? Where do you see these things? It's impossible to tell. 
um, you know, a commandant might come in who is not fully on board with uh, force design 2030 and may elect to roll back some of the individual piece parts of the plan. But like you said, it's hard for me to imagine any future commandant saying FD2030 has no merit at all, and therefore we're just going to stop um, pursuing any of the changes. And you might get a commandant who says, look, I'm really on board. I want to go faster. Uh, you just don't know. But for example, um, there's a lot of consternation, much more consternation than I think is uh, warranted. There's a lot of consternation that the uh, commandant divested tanks right. in the Marine Corps. Um, now, the Marine Corps had two active duty tank battalions, each with 54 tanks. The tank battalion is the unit of action for tanks. So we're talking 108 tanks. You had 54 tanks that were in the reserves. So now we're talking 162 tanks. And then there were some tanks on the maritime prepositioning force store, stored inside the ships so that you could get them to the fight quickly. But the Marine Corps had a grand total of 400 tanks. What the Commandant has said is, look, I'm looking out in the future, and I believe the Marine Corps of the future needs five things, more. I mean, we need to have more of five things. And those five things are long range precision fires, unmanned systems, a command and control system that can survive in a contested environment, air and missile defense, and advanced technologies like AI. That's what the Commandant says, this is what I think I need in 2030. I need more of this. And the opponents are saying, I want tanks and cannons. Now, I gotta say, Chris, I'm an artilleryman, I love cannons. Um, and I've talked with, you know, I've known a lot of Marine tankers, but if you're talking to, I, I believe this, this is an opinion. If you talk to many military professionals and say, okay, imagine yourself in a fight in 2030, would you rather have more long range precision fires, more unmanned systems, a better C2 system, air and missile defense, and advanced technologies like AI, or would you rather uh, keep 400 tanks? That's what it's down to, it's a choice. You, you know, you can't afford to keep both. And what the Commandant has said, the opportunity cost to keep these 400 tanks is really high. You know, you have to have breachers for the tanks, you have to have recovery vehicles for the tanks, you have to have route clearance vehicles for the tanks. You have to have bridging for the tanks. You have to have big giant refuelers for the tanks. Carrying all of that for 400 tanks is not worth giving up. I mean, it is not worth the resources that I could free up to go after these other five things. That's all he's saying. He's not saying tanks are obsolete. He's just saying for the Marine Corps of 2030, we need these other capabilities more than we need tanks and cannons. So, so back to your original question. You might see a commandant come in and say, you know what? On balance, I think General Berger was right, but I'd feel better if I kept two tank battalions in the reserves. And I'm willing to pay to get that capability. You could easily imagine something like that. Or you could imagine a commandant saying, you know what? 
I, I think the commandant's right on. I'd rather have these things that he was pursuing. The Marine Corps right now is pushing what they call organic precision fires down to the squad level. The squad level, this is the lowest unit of action in the Marine Corps. Some people might argue it's the fire team, but I would argue it's the squad. So the Marines are going after loitering munitions and they're routinely killing tank targets at 70 kilometers with these loitering munitions, um, you know, in tests and experiments, they're not using them in combat. But uh, the Commandant is saying, I need more of that, more than I need 400 tanks. And that's, that's all it is. I mean, I, I am just stunned at, you know, the focus on tanks when there's so much bigger things going on in this redesign effort. So in the time that we have left, I'd love to get your take on the relationship between the Navy and the Marine Corps um, with regard to this uh, uh, strategy. Obviously, the retired uh, general officers are creating an obstacle and uh, making it difficult to move that forward, even if it's just a bandwidth suck. But at least from my vantage point in watching the commandant and the CNO interact publicly, whether it's on the Hill or at think tank events or whatever, there does not seem to be unity of effort or harmony among them professionally. I, I can't speak to their personal relationship. It is not like we've seen in the past where the commandant and the CNO are sort of lockstep in terms of what naval team they were going to put on the field in the future. Has that bubbled up to your level? And to what degree do you think that has caused uh, the commandant to have to you know, readjust or refocus where he wants to take the Marine Corps? It's a great question, Chris. And I think this is one area where the opponents uh, are onto something. They're saying, hey, you know, you're betting, an, you're betting the farm on the Navy really being a, a true partner with you. And where is the evidence that that is happening? And I think they're onto something. There hasn't been a full-throated, you know, Navy embrace of these pans. Same thing on Indo-PACOM. You know, the opponents would say, why isn't the commander of Indo-PACOM saying, this is exactly the type of Marine Corps I need to fight a war in the Western Pacific? And you don't see them saying that. Now, I know, I know that the Marines and the Navy and the Marines and Indo-PACOM are talking all the time. I know that the commander of Indo-PACOM supports what the Marines are doing. They're working hand in glove to try to fine tune the war plans and how Marines might be employed. But it is something that could definitely be improved. Same thing could be said with, for the Office of the Secretary of Defense. I think a lot of this could just stop if Secretary Austin came out and said, look, I'm not gonna sit here and debate all of them eaches on this, but I am going to say that what the retired general officers are doing is unsatisfactory. I don't think it's appropriate. And I fully support what the commandant is doing. I've approved it. Let's just move on and let's try to make it better uh, rather than tear it down. But you haven't really heard any full-throated office of the Secretary of Defense uh, endorsement. So I believe the opponents do have a point in this regard. And I would hope that it gets improved. It sort of does look like senior leadership is sort of taking a step back and letting the Marines fight it out amongst themselves, doesn't it? It does. And I just don't understand it. 
I mean, the 2018 National Defense Strategy essentially said, we're starting to lose our military technical superiority. They didn't say it in these exact words, but this is what the strategy was about. We're losing our military technical superiority. Our conventional deterrence posture is eroding. We're, we could, we run the risk of falling behind China in a fight in the Western Pacific, and we need to change course, and we need to change it dramatically. In fact, in the last two paragraphs, uh, Secretary Mattis said, this strategy indicates my intent to seek urgent change at significant scale. Berger is the only service chief, I would argue, that took that charge to heart and said, okay, you wanna see some urgent change? Here it is. And you wanna see it at significant scale? I'm changing the entire Marine Corps. And if the retired general officers win, let's just imagine a future where future commandants have to go to retired general officers and say, is it okay if I do this? I mean, what kind of future would that be? And uh, so in my view, it's in the interests of the office of the Secretary of Defense to intervene and say, hey, this is not kosher. This isn't the way things should be. I'll meet with the retired officers. Retired officers, come in and talk with me. But I would like you to stop your public pillaring of the coming out of the Marine Corps. And, uh, you know, let's try to work to make this better rather than work to kill it. I think um, I think I would agree that it's, it's time. Debate is good. Healthy debate is very good. Um, a healthy organization does does talk about these issues. On the other hand, at some point, um, it, some, some higher leadership probably needs to step in. Well, folks, uh, that does it for our for our time today. Our guest has been Robert Work, former deputy. I can't talk today. <laughs> I'll do that again. Well, folks, that does it for our, for our. I can't talk. Yeah, I've been talking and now I can't talk. Well, folks, that does it for our, for our podcast today. Our guest has been. Damn it. Well, folks, that does it for our, our interview today. Our guest has been Robert Work, former deputy secretary of defense, and himself a former Marine artilleryman. Thank you very much for being here today, sir. It was great, Chris, uh, to both Chris's. Thank you for having me. Now hear this, now hear this. Okay, and now Mr. Savello with some thoughts on the Marines' wide open controversy. Chris, I'm really torn about this week's discussion topic. It's hard not to like the big picture changes General Berger is pushing smaller, more lethal, disaggregated forces on board Navy ships. Those sound like a problem that will drive the Chinese crazy for years to come. I also like that he's willing to admit the plan isn't completely baked and is actively seeking and responding to input from the Fleet Marine Force. It's not surprising that the retired general officer community is skeptical. Berger is pushing a very different way of thinking about naval forces and Marine fighting doctrine. Questioning his assumptions and predicted outcomes seems fair and needed. What's odd, though, and maybe even a little worrisome, is the tone that has been taken by the Marine Greybeard crowd. It feels mean-spirited, condescending, and unhelpful. Any public squabble among Marines feels weird because we just aren't used to seeing it. But instead of challenging the strategy and tactics Berger is pushing forward, the retired critique seems like a challenge to the Commandant himself. It feels like they are questioning his ability to think and lead. Now, debate and dissent are good things. They force clarity, rework, and even change. But it can go too far. 
When that debate takes away from the credibility of the leader, when it takes away from their bandwidth to lead, and when it becomes unproductive to the larger context of the problem being solved, others need to step in. I agree with Secretary Work. It's time for Secretary of Defense Austin to publicly support the Commandant, thank the Graybeards for their interest in the United States Marine Corps, and end the public debate. We need Marines focused on deterring and defeating our adversaries, not on what a retired general said to whom in what news outlet. Letting this continue will only stifle creativity and will further distract the Marine Corps. All right. Well, thanks, Chris. Semper Fi. And folks, that does it for this week. As always, our thanks go out to Vago Moradian and the Defense and Aerospace Group for their support. Be sure to follow us at Cavus Ships on Twitter. And remember, this podcast is available on iTunes, Google Play, iHeartRadio, SoundCloud, and Spotify. I'm Chris Cervello. And I'm Chris Cavus. Thanks for listening, and bye-bye. Hey.